Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Fending. Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your process theology fangirl and A People's Theology host, Mason Meniga. In this episode, I talk with David Finnegan Hosey. David is a college chaplain and writer on mental illness and faith. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Tiger Wine. Tiger Wine is an alternative rock band from Colorado. You can get connected with both David and Tiger Wine and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have David Finnegan Hosey. And uh, David, you not only are a Me Without You fan and not only are the chaplain of Barton College in North Carolina, uh, I'm sure there's other things that make up who you are. So with that said, who is David Finnegan Hosey to David Finnegan Hosey? Sure. Yeah, thanks. Uh, great question. Uh, I, let me, I'll tell you a little bit about my family. I'm, I'm married to my wife, Lee. Uh, who is also a chaplain. She's a hospital chaplain. So we have the same profession, but in, in pretty different contexts. Hmm, and then we have a dog named Penny Lane. Uh, she's an English Springer Spaniel and uh, she's great. Um, I'm. Uh, let's see, what are some other things about me? I'm a four on the Enneagram. Mm. I have a lot of feelings about feelings. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, and uh, I'm also an author uh, and I write about uh, the intersections among uh, faith and mental health and mental illness and our faith communities. Um, so I'm somebody who has a diagnosed mental illness. I have bipolar disorder. And so I think and talk and write a lot about uh, living with that and kind of working out my life as a person of faith with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so written two books about it. The first was called Christ on the Psych Ward. And then this most recent one is called Grace is a Pre-Existing Condition, Faith Systems and Mental Health Care. Um, so yeah, I'm a mental health advocate. and. Um, and let's see, I play guitar, I write songs. 
Wonderful. All sorts of fun facts about me. Yeah. Just like just like any Enneagram four should be writing yeah. songs and playing yeah. guitar. That's, that's right. It's a it's a requirement. Yeah. So with that said, uh, what is something you learned about maybe theology or maybe about mental health or even the healthcare system as you wrote this current book? Um, Grace is a pre-existing condition, and maybe it's something that you didn't know before. Yeah, I learned a lot about the how the uh, modern healthcare system and health insurance system in the United States came into existence that mm. I didn't know before, um, and and some of the history around uh, that. The, what we think of as like our insurance system here in the U S coming out of world war II, which was really interesting to me because there's this um, connection between the kind of the war economy and how we think about healthcare that I didn't know about. And that I thought was particularly um, powerful to learn mm-hmm. that the, the roots of our, what we think of as normal for healthcare in our country came from a, a time of crisis and b a time when we were really oriented around this concept of like war being what determined our economic priorities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting. Can you talk a little bit more then about what the healthcare system looked like prior to world war two? Yeah. So, so in world war two, you basically have the emergence of um, employer based health insurance being um, the sort of the standard for health insurance. So you've got a modern medical system starting to emerge. And then in World War II, you have something called the Stabilization Act that happens in 1942, um, which, which freezes wages. It's related to the Great Depression and entering into the war, right? So freezes wages. Um, and then companies start offering this thing called health insurance as a way to attract workers because their wages have been frozen by mm-hmm. a federal act. And so um, they start offering insurance. People start uh, getting used to the idea that their employer is the place they get insurance. And then what happens over time is you have a sort of a patchwork of other programs that are put in place Mm -hmm. to try to offer the same kind of protection uh, to people who don't fall into that category. So you have Medicaid and Medicare, for example, being obvious examples, or the Social Security system, Mm -hmm. then the Affordable Care Act much more recently. But it's this weird like patchwork that's all centered around private insurance provided by you having a job and that job offering employer uh, offering insurance mm-hmm. being the standard thing that we think of as as like the norm, right? Hmm. Interesting. Uh, you might appreciate this question as an enneagram for, uh, but this <laughs> is your second book, as you mentioned. What is something that you learned about yourself while writing this book in particular? Yeah. So fours go to one. Yep. <laughs> in, uh, in in strength or in growth, right? And uh, my first book, I felt that really keenly of the ability to like really um, take the feelings that were swirling around in me and actually like get them in right order and right words on the pages. And I struggled much more with this second book. And I actually uh, write about that a little bit in the book in, in the conclusion of like, this one was really hard for me to write. It was... It was in a way easier for me to do the first book, which was a lot of like personal, like delving into how my personal experience with mental illness impacted the way I think about theology to write this second book. That's much more about systems, um, much more 
uh, you you might say like externally focused mm-hmm. uh, was way harder for me, <laughs> which I think is probably like a very poor thing to say. Yeah. Like you know, the idea of like just dwelling in my kind of interior space yeah. uh, was maybe a little bit easier for me than than kind of getting that directed uh, out and getting that focused on um, changing systems and how faith communities can be impactful in advocacy work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, a little bit ago that you have bipolar disorder. Can you talk a little bit about your journey with bipolar disorder? At what point did you get diagnosed with it? Maybe there were things certainly before that that were indicators that you may have had have this disorder. And how how post-diagnosis has that journey been? So the yeah. whole overall journey, what, what's that been like? Yeah, definitely. So looking back, I can definitely see when I was a teenager, probably 15, 16, first starting to experience the symptoms of what now I would, I would know to call bipolar disorder. Um, I have what's called type two bipolar disorder, um, which means that I tend to have like lower highs and longer lows um, than people who have type one. And a lot of people with type two bipolar disorder, what I have um, are misdiagnosed or, or aren't diagnosed early on because we're able to kind of fake it uh, mm. sort of like fake it till we make it a lot. And I did that a lot in high school. So uh, people who were close to me could see that I was really struggling and really suffering. But I was like, doing okay in school. And you know, like, unless you were not doing okay in school, everything was fine kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't until I was in my mid 20s in 2011 that I, I went into the hospital um, and was eventually diagnosed, which is a lot of what that my first book, uh, Christ on the Psych Ward, covers, and and just had to learn a lot about just uh, was was sort of a reckoning, like a coming face to face with the mm-hmm. how poorly functioning I had often been operating mm. uh, up until the point where I actually um, was was a danger to myself and, and ended up in the hospital. Um, so I was diagnosed in 2011 and. Um, had a real tough time sort of after that diagnosis, just finding my way again, kind of finding a path again. It was a long, slow process. And um, now I think I have a much greater acceptance of that, the reality that is bipolar disorder in my life. But I try to be really careful when I share um, with groups or when I share with churches not to kind of overly like happy ending my story Mm -hmm. like bipolar disorder is still a thing i've got and it's still hard Mm -hmm. and uh just recently just in october i I had to be back in the hospital again um for a much shorter time this time and, and it was much less sort of unknown and scary this time but still that was the right decision for my health and well-being and stability mm-hmm. at the time mm-hmm. right and so it is this ongoing re- reality in my life and you you know learn to approach it with this mixture of of acceptance and of paying attention to things you can change and of needing to remind yourself occasionally like okay i'm not superman like i can't just mm-hmm. do everything all at once and white knuckle my way through everything because i have this um this sort of internal disability this invisible disability that um not that it's healthy for anybody to be white knuckling their way through mm-hmm. everything right which is i mm-hmm. think one of the the hidden gifts in something like a, a diagnosis of you learn these things about yourself and like 
oh, okay, I can't just do everything. And then you realize, well, 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 neither can anyone else, right? Actually, this is a helpful lesson for us all to learn. One of the things I really appreciate about your book is that you talk about pre-existing condition. It's a really preeminent theme throughout the book. Um, And not only do you make pre-existing condition like a theological category, uh, but you also talk a little bit about like the history of pre-existing condition. Um, And I think it's really important to to have this conversation um, because pre-existing condition has really become this sort of shibboleth in a way. It's become a really polarized term. especially in regards to um, the Affordable Care Act years ago um, and how that became a really kind of defining point for whether you're more conservative or more liberal, um, how you thought about that that term. Yeah. So anyway, can you talk a little bit about the history of pre-existing conditions? Like th- this is something that is really fascinating, that the concept of pre-existing condition is is fairly a modern concept. Yeah, so the the first uh, example of the term pre-existing condition being used in relation to healthcare is uh, 1947. There's an article in the uh, uh, Reno, Nevada newspaper that uses the term pre-existing condition. And this is, you remember I said 1942 was the Stabilization Act, right? So right around the same time frame as this modern healthcare system is coming into place, this term pre-existing condition is starting to be used in the way that we use it today to talk about um, health care and health insurance and um, the insurance company being able to analyze whether or not you had something before you're asking them to cover you, uh, et cetera. And, you know, like you said, this then comes into prominence around debates around the Affordable Care Act, right? Um, interestingly, the, the first use of the term pre-existing in the English language in print just pre-existing, not with condition on it, is in the 1500s. It's in a theological textbook, yeah. right? And it's <laughs> it's just uh, ta- it's talking about the pre-existence of God and the pre-existence of Christ, right? This like very this ancient sort of Christian concept that the early church fought about, and you know there were you know fist fights over and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so so it's this theological concept, but then. The way we use the term today is like a relatively, you know, in in that history, a relatively recent use. And so it's interesting to see a word that has this this theological and spiritual root coming to be used in modern language to be um, a method of risk management, right? So that's like insurance companies are doing risk management, right? They are making Mm -hmm. a gamble that... uh, you know, you're not going to need the service they provide. You're making a gamble that you're going to use it. And if they can weed you out, if you're too risky, then they can win the bet. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's like basically how that system functions. Um, So, yeah, I just became like really sensitive to the way the term pre-existing condition like impacted me on a personal level, not just in the literal ways that it like prevented me from getting care and pushed me into debt, but like it felt like I had been assigned into this category mm. of like too risky, 
uh, too sick, right? We can't deal with you. We can't take care of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that lang- for that term to be used in that way, rather than talking about the pre-existing wholeness and goodness and divine creativeness of God, um, I, I think like, I don't know, it's sort of a modern form of heresy. And yeah. so that stuck with me as I was writing the book. That, that segues well into my next question, and which is sort of regarding salvation um, and your, your discussion on salvation in the book. And the sort of way you just described it is that you, you've, in a way, with with being categorized with a pre-existing condition, in a sense, you are being elected, right? There's this like prior election that is regardless to the way in which you live your life or the thing, the things you believe, you've been elected to a certain thing regardless because of this category that's been assigned to you. Um, so with that said, how do theologies regarding salvation have anything to do with how we understand the healthcare system? Yeah, so there's this sort of two-way street where we see our understanding of these seemingly very different things impacting each other, um, I would say in kind of unhealthy ways and that we could we can bring a new lens to them and maybe have a, a more healthy impact in both directions. So I, I like to tell the story. I was, I was driving uh, through uh, some small towns uh, a year or so ago and, and saw a sign outside of a church, one of those, you know, church signs that you can change the lettering mm-hmm. on uh, every week. And it said, come inside for your fire insurance, right? Like the implication being, you know, you, you go inside this church right. and you, you'll be saved and you'll be saved from the fires of hell, right? And that right there is like this church sign summation of how so often the concept of salvation is talked about in in our culture, right? It's it's risk management. It's insurance. You buy yes. in however you buy and you you say the Jesus prayer or whatever it is, and then you're bought in and then you're you're saved from the risky thing. Um, in this case, eternal damnation, right? Mm-hmm. Which to me is a really watered down uh, insurance concept from the concept of assurance of salvation, which is a much older, deeper Christian concept, which is this sense of like being accepted and forgiven and loved by God, and that like me, yes, me, I'm included in this this story, right? So then you you look at our healthcare system, and it's based on this insurance model. It's based on risk management. Who's risky? Who uh, who is outside of the provision of care because they're too sick or um, too potentially sick, mm-hmm. right? Rather than being based in assurance, right? The, the assurance of care that, mm-hmm. that no matter who you are, you will be cared for. Like me, yes, even me, I could be cared for within the context of the system. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so we've, we've built our system around the risk management. And um, it, it seems like very disparate contexts right, or concepts, but actually the, the term for salvation in the Greek New Testament is also the term for healing or for wholeness. And you see that, you hear that connection even in the English. So salve, right? To salve mm-hmm. a wound, to care for a wound. So if we have something called the assurance of salvation, that's also an assurance of healing, an assurance of wholeness. What if our healthcare system was based around that rather than insuring us against risk?
one of the things that I find really interesting regarding the conversation around mental health is that the conver- that the conversation around mental health these days often has this conclusion that we just need more self-care or something, right? Um, and I think self-care certainly is necessary, um, but it really oftentimes seems to lack the explicit naming that there are systems in place that undermine our mental health in the first place, which then necessitates self-care, right? Um, and so it seems like self-care is this more, um, uh, this preventative measure, or not, not a preventative measure, it's a, it's a post-preventative measure. Um, but anyway, h- how do we balance, or how do you think we should balance the conversations between having this individualized self-care and also the need for systemic change to our, our healthcare system at large? Yeah, I think that's a great question and like really worthy of a lot of ongoing discussion. I, I want everyone should be really suspicious when their employers talk about self-care. Like no matter <laughs> how great your employer is and you know, probably a lot of you listening have great employers, but like like employers shouldn't tell you about self-care unless they're giving you paid time off to do it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's just like as just a basic example of the kind of thing we're talking about, right? Self-care is really important, but it cannot be a stand-in for care in the context of community, right? Mm -hmm. And so the idea that I can just like improve my mental health by taking a long bath and doing some yoga is predicated on me having the ability to even take the time to do those things or to step away from labor to do those things, right? So, So even at its most basic level, um, the system that we are a part of, the economic system, the healthcare system that we're part of, uh, impacts our impacts our ability to do even these basic forms of self care. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I can't afford my medication, what is the meaning of self care? Right? I mean, we have people who can't afford insulin and they have diabetes. How how are you going to say to them like, well, you just do self care, right? Right. Uh, So I think like, you know, we could expand that out to all sorts of different examples. But I think one of the important things to say is uh, if we think about instead like caring for ourselves in the context of community, then what that means is that I can step out and I can advocate for change to the system. And then I can step back and take care of myself when somebody else can step forward because we're in this together, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a communal concept there. And for some people, they've been shouting and they've been yelling and they've been advocating and they're so tired and they need to step back and take a rest. For other people, they've been so silenced, their voice has been so, so suppressed that mm-hmm. the ability to step up and to, to make some noise and to challenge the system is going to be really therapeutic and really healing. So when we understand ourselves as part of a community and, and part, of a, part of the health of the system, um, then, I think, then I think conversations around self-care can actually make some more concrete sense mm-hmm. than the sort of like self-care product that's yeah. being by capitalism in a lot of cases. Yeah, totally. One of the things that I mentioned before that is a preeminent theme throughout this book, right, and it's even the subtitle is that, or not even just the subtitle, it's the main title, is that grace is a pre-existing condition, right? So what you're trying to do is turn pre-existing condition into a theological category. Mm-hmm. Um, what are ways in which our healthcare system can maybe operate on a theology of grace, if you will. Yeah. So I think um, if we think of um, 
grace pre-existing, um, then we're talking about God being gracious as like a, a character trait of God, right? Mm. That God creates because of grace and through grace, right? That it's a gift. Creation is a gift. Um, that God breathes life into us and that that's grace and that that's a gift, right? Which again is really different than the way we often talk about the concept of grace in Protestantism, where grace is this ex post facto divine intervention, right? Mm. We messed up. And so God had to sort of begrudgingly be gracious and, and forgive us for all the mess ups. But I think grace is a much more like consistent theme throughout our scriptures and through the mm. character of God than that. So then what does that mean when we're talking about a healthcare system? Well, you know, where we start the story matters. If we start the story with brokenness and pathology, we'll see brokenness and pathology throughout the story. But if we start mm. the story with a gracious creator who breathes life, then we see grace and the call to life throughout the story. Mm. So if we start our healthcare system with pathology, who's too sick, who's too risky, who do we need to kind of cut out of the equation, um, then that's what we're going to see throughout the system, right? If we start with a commitment to everyone has this gift of life, this gift of health given to them. Everyone has the potential for human wholeness um, and human goodness. Then the system we build to take care of that humanity is going to be dedicated to care for all. It's going to be mm -hmm. um, searching out for itself ways that it can expand itself to include more and more people rather than limiting itself to smaller and smaller groups of people. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I think we can, you can, you can work out maybe different policy platforms or different, um, different political possibilities of what then, you know, what then you do with that commitment. But I think it, it leads us in a definite direction as far as um, expanding the system more and more to take care of more and more people and more and more types of people. Today, I have Hayden from Tiger Wine. And Hayden, uh, here's the one thing. I have lots of bands on my on my podcast, and I like a lot of them for lots of different reasons. Um, I have only had two, though, that are have been on Tooth & Nail Records, and you're, you're now the second one. Uh, right. So you can, you can take pride in the fact that like, you're one of the very few signed bands that have been on my podcast, uh, which, <laughs> the, which might say that you might be kind of like, on another level uh, oh. of so anyway um how are you man yeah let, let's talk a little bit about this, this is a recent <laughs> development for you and your band uh, if you don't mind me asking who was the first oh i had silent planet on once so, oh badass yeah. i i i've gotten to know garrett the last couple of years what a cherub yeah. of a person right Dude, just absolutely just a total 
jerk all the time. Yeah, just I, just an <laughs> asshole. Like, I mean, yeah. my God. So anyway, uh, I, I want to hear a little bit more. I mean, this is a recent development for your band. This is a big deal. I mean, Tooth and Nail, that's no slouch of a record company. Um, so, I mean, you th- this is like a huge thing for you and your band. I'm sure like at one point when you all started out playing music, all started out being in this band, like maybe at one point you're like, God, it'd be nice to like be signed to a tooth and nail. So anyway, yeah. let's hear Like, let's tell me a little bit about that whole thing happening. Yeah. I mean, so we, uh, were, man, where do I want to start? We like, uh, basically we're looking at like, we, we were kind of in a relationship working with, uh, another label before this. And like that kind of, um, ended as like, you know, small independent labels tend to and stuff. It just kind of like, it was one of those things that mm-hmm. happened. And we basically, while we were, that was kind of looming, we, we decided to go make this record with our buddy, Jeremy. And, uh, yeah, this, this album was made in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, it's his, his studio is called Coyote Face Recording. So, um, we just decided to go out to Nebraska and make a record and not wait for for a label or for anyone to tell us to, or to, you know, wait for the right timing. And so we were sitting on this record for a while. We, it was, uh, we tracked it in February from February 5th to March, like 5th ish, uh, of 2019 or eight, 2018, 2019. Yeah. Of 2019. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like so just, just up. like over a year ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So now it's finally coming out. And so like what basically was going on was like, obviously, as, as I'm sure every band ever has said, like you we're sitting on this record and we're like pushing it, we're sending it to whoever we can think of. And we're sometimes getting responses, sometimes following up with whoever. And uh, we started talking with with Tooth and & Nail and uh, they have already like we had had a phone conversation with Adam from Tooth & Nail, who's the, the, the A&R guy. Um, who we're working with now and like I had talked to him two years ago like two years before that um, and then also like a year ago like around the time we were we were making the record as well Um, and so they were like the only label who had like super super pursued us Mm -hmm. Um, like he had he had hit us up uh, like you know this it was what was the third time uh, oh wow all talked to him and so hot ticket yeah so it was just a commodity like we kind of decided so because Tuesday Nail wasn't like a uh like obviously like when we were you know starting this band and starting music and stuff like that like Tooth and Nail was such a big deal and we were like we were, I'm totally honored to be a part of Tooth and Nail um but like we are you know our first thoughts were like those you know the labels that are happening right now and like sending stuff out to you know the equal visions of the world mm-hmm. and like the, you know those kinds of things and like uh, we just decided that like we would rat like so much rather be with uh, a label that like had come after us and like wanted you know like already had ideas and already had like kind mm-hmm. of the thing that they wanted to do moving forward. Um, and Adam is just like a huge sweetheart, and we yeah we just got along like we hit it off. Um, and so I'm like a hundred percent pumped on what's what's going on it was amazing that's that's amazing i i love hearing sort of that relationship between a band and a label i mean there's so many times where that can be just uh <laughs> like a a relationship that burns out the band um yeah. but it sounds like there's this like a hundred percent trust that both of you have with one another which yeah. i think will only create um create uh just wonderful wonderful music for for 
obviously the label to be able to, you know, get out and distribute, but also, you know, for you all to have like a relationship where you feel comfortable to put out what feels best for you all. Absolutely. I hope so. Yeah. Like we, it just, um, it just all kind of fell into place so quickly. And they, uh, the thing that he kept saying was, was under promise and over deliver. And (laughs) that's kind of the opposite, uh, experience that we had had. Um, we had just like, you know, everyone has these stories, but we had had those like, you know, said yes too quickly to something or like Mm -hmm. decided to work with, you know, somebody we didn't know. And it just turned into like, Oh, like, you know, nothing happened at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so for them to like come out, like very first thing is just like, I want to like absolutely like over deliver. And I was just like, Oh, that sold. (laughs) So So you mentioned you, you have the whole thing recorded. It's all ready to go. Um, I'm sure there's like a release date set and everything. And they've already, you've already released a couple singles. Um, Mm -hmm. and I know like with your past, like recordings and everything, there's like a certain level of like um, pride that you have for them, uh, especially them probably being like earlier releases. But what uh, are you most proud of with this upcoming release? Oh man, I love that question. Um, so <laughs> the Steve, our guitar player, and I were talking the other day. Did you just say uh, guitar? By the way, I oh my gosh, I, I love I, that. I, I, I don't think anybody to... said guitar <laughs> yet on here. Is that's that... a, that's a first in a people's <laughs> theology and Sheep podcast history. When I'm <laughs> sometimes when i'm not thinking or i'm a little nervous my like planes garbage comes out <laughs> um but so <laughs> i have come from uh north central nebraska originally oh just, yeah like, yeah that's, well that's that's guitar territory <laughs> <laughs> but we were uh the other day talking about like this very thing um and when we made uh, our first full length, uh, it's called Die With Your Tongue Out. And we made it in Atlanta with with Goldman, which was like, that was wow. the most like unbelievable experience ever. It just basically so. we were, I noticed you've got a comrade's hat on you. I do have a comrade's hat on. No, it was, it was, <laughs> it was early 2015, I think. And we were, we were out on tour with comrades and we were in a Goodwill. And the label we were with at the time called us up and said, hey, I have space for you. Uh, next month and so we basically we were adding our current drummer Shane uh, like in the process of like asking him if he'd be down uh, and we were like oh we got to go make a record you know next month and we probably had I mean we didn't have an, enough then and there like it wasn't done mm-hmm. and so we basically got home from we were like halfway through and so we we did the last like two two and a half weeks of that tour and then we got home, flew out Shane from Pennsylvania to the Springs, Colorado Springs. And we spent all day, every day for three weeks writing the record. And, and then we like went out there and like all that to say it just, um, that record to me. And and I know that like, there's a thing called demoitis where (laughs) you, you are there from start to finish and you hear like the, the like scratch tracks all the way to the final product. And so you hear everything that ever got changed or everything that you, that when you, you didn't notice that it wasn't a beat that you didn't like it so much. And then at the end it's still there and no one else notices those things, but you do. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that for me uh, about the old record was that I was like, man, to me, like my vocals are like the guitar parts that I had written or like some of the, you know, like background things I had always like my first thought is like, man, that sounds so thrown together to me because it seemed it like it felt like we were scrambling. Um, and this time we like most of the songs were written 
you know, a year or more before we recorded them. And so they, they mm. went through different iterations and changed yeah. stuff. And so it was, it just really felt like all of the songs were given the time and the energy and the, and everything that they needed. And that I felt like they deserved, I guess, mm-hmm. without like at the risk of sounding, you know, weird, mm-hmm. but <laughs> like, yeah. I felt like they deserved to be given the time that we gave them. And then Jeremy also as a producer was like so patient and so like, you know, down to go super hard or not. And like whatever day, however we felt. And like, yeah, it just felt like, I guess like the, like the songs could breathe, I guess mm. is a, is a good way to say it. That's super great. Yeah. I was, I was proud of us for having the patience, I guess, yeah. to answer the question at the very end here. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that. Well, Hayden, I really appreciate the music. Uh, to be honest, it really does feel like an honor that I can feature a tooth and nail band on my podcast. Like, like I said, it's not like it happens every day. So uh, the <laughs> fact that I get to, to say that, I, I really love it. Um, I, I'll be honest. I think you're one of the best tooth and nail signings of recent uh, memory. Uh, I'm really, really impressed with your music um, and I'm just absolutely stoked for the whole album to come out. So what I've heard so far in those two singles is pretty impressive. So, uh, so thank, thank you so much. It certainly seems like, and this sort of ties into the previous or, or a previous question regarding that atonement seems to really be much more of this like insurance theological concept, whereas you know as we talked about before that um, if if you your your understanding of Jesus's death on the cross and resurrection as more of this like universal salvific moment that that really will lead you towards thinking of a healthcare system that is more universalized, the thinking of a healthcare system that isn't predicated on the risk management, right? Because all is guaranteed regardless, right? Regardless of the pre-existing condition, right? Um, so it's really interesting to even think that our atonement theories or, or rather our soteriology really matters to how then we will understand, or our soteriology rather, will lead us to a particular understanding of how we understand healthcare, right? So anyway, I, I, yeah. I really, I think, I think you're totally right that not only is the theological category of grace, but also our soteriology are so intimately connected, uh, and they, how we understand both of those things will really ultimately lead us to our particular ideas regarding healthcare. Yeah, and I think it's it's fascinating to me because I think it's a two-way street, right? Because to go back to that church sign, right, that says, come inside for your fire insurance, they're this secular concept of fire insurance, right, mm-hmm. is now coming back into the soteriology of this congregation yes. and impacting the way they think about the cosmos right and so it's like you know i don't know which came first right the chicken or the egg i guess like marx and hegel can battle that out or whatever (laughs) but like you know did the idea impact the material reality or the material reality impact the idea but like but 
But as people of faith, we should care about and pay attention to the way our theological language impacts the way we then understand, for example, how we take care of the health and wellness of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, with the, when we think about the cross, right, you can either look at the cross and see a, um, a condemnation of political violence and violent power, or you can see an affirmation that suffering is a good thing, right? And, mm-hmm. and if, you know, if you hold one view or hold the other, then you're going to view human suffering and our response to human suffering in a different way. Right? This stuff matters, I think. Yeah, totally. As we're currently in a political season, what is the, the sort of hope that you have, maybe um, in terms of policy or even just in the broader political conversation regarding mental health right now and, and the healthcare system? Yeah, I think I think huge strides have been made just to be speaking about mental health and to be making the connections um, between mental health and other systems that are at play in the political sphere. Um, so just just the, the the fact that we've opened up the conversation um, is is awesome and gives me a lot of hope. And I think then gives us the opportunity to start pushing at some of those connections to make real change and, and real progress. Um, I was uh, really struck by um, uh, Stacey Abrams, who, who ran uh, for governor in Georgia in, in 2018, um, who um, spoke very openly about her debt and the way that her family's medical needs had contributed to her having debt. And her brother, who gave her permission to share about it, um, his incarceration and the way that that incarceration had come out of um, uh, an addiction that was self-medication for underlying mental health needs, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that, and and she almost won in Georgia and and probably, would have if it wasn't for the sort of racist voter suppression that she's now yeah. working right against. Um, the fact that a, a candidate, a high profile candidate in this race for governor was just like coming out and talking about this stuff so openly was, I was like, okay, maybe we can do this, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. like um, maybe, maybe we can really push, um, push these issues. So, so I do have a lot of hope um, seeing the way that, um, the conversation around healthcare has really evolved and, and changed over the years. Um, I, I know that right now we're in a pretty contentious part of this this process, and uh, you know some people are feeling frustrated that their chosen candidate maybe has uh, dropped out of the race or isn't doing as well as they thought or whatever. But like the conversation that we're having in 2020 about healthcare so much further along than we were in 2016 mm-hmm. and that's that was further along than we were in 2008 right we are pushing this thing so like we you that's that's how this works right you keep pushing at it you keep pushing at it you keep pushing at it because the political sphere is never going to be perfect right it's ne- mm-hmm. it's never going to be like entirely the the place where this vision of a more just and caring society um is brought to fruition. That's kind of our job to like bring that vision to the political process and and push the political process along in the direction it needs to head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you see this book being inspiring and liberating theological work? Yeah, 
Yeah, so I, I wanted to write a book that would open up conversations um, in local churches and seminaries and, you know, in, in small groups um, to make some connections between um, the scripture and theological reflection, um, the personal experience of mental health struggle, um, which, by the way, like I have a diagnosed mental illness, right? That's like a chronic acute thing. But we all have mental health struggles, right? We all have mental health, just like we all have physical health. We all have mental health struggles. We all have times in our life where we struggle. Um, so mental health struggle, theological, biblical reflection, and the practice of ministry. What does it actually look like to be the people of God in relationship to each other? Mm -hmm. um, and to do so in a way that's accessible and that creates space for people to share their stories be part of a broader conversation and then go out into the world to work for the common good. Mm. Um, and so I think it's liberative work for people to be able to name experiences of mental health struggle or just struggle in general in their faith communities. And then even more liberative to have those stories be connected into a broader conversation and that conversation to lead us out as advocates to say, like, we're not just talking about this to each other, but we're bringing this conversation out into the world. Mm -hmm. So, so I hope that people experience that as liberative. It, it's for me, it's been freeing, certainly. Mm -hmm. And I have seen um, in very concrete ways, the way that me sharing my story has freed others to share their story. And then once we've created this story sharing community, um, you know, I don't know. That's, I, that's what church is. I just, uh, mm -hmm. there, there's this great, um, story in the gospels where Jesus has sent all the disciples out and they've been like, you know, kicking demons around and healing people and, you know, just, and then they come back to him and they, they're sitting around kind of a fire together. And the, the text says they told him everything they had done and taught. And I love that verse because it, it says everything, right? Mm -hmm. So like, sure all the demon butt kicking etc but also i'm sure stories of failure and struggle yeah. and you know i i didn't know that i was going to make it out of this one alive right kind mm -hmm. of stories what what if what if we're that right this group gathered around jesus sharing everything sharing mm -hmm. all of the stories that to me is a really liberating vision yeah i love that how can listeners get connected with you and your work Sure. Um, so you can go to my website, which is davidfinneganhosey.com. Um, there's, there's two N's in Finnegan. <laughs> um, and uh, you see my see books there. There's resources there, um, including mental health resources, um, resources for people in crisis, uh, free excerpts from my books that you can download, um, a discussion guide for the first book. We'll have a discussion guide for the second one up soon. So that's, yeah, that's davidfinneganhosey.com. Uh, again, the books are Christ on the Psych Ward and Grace is a Pre-Existing Condition. And then um, I'm at Foolish Hosey on social media, Twitter, <laughs> Facebook, and Instagram. Perfect. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you so much, David. Uh, you know, you, you already kind of are up on my ranking of favorite people just because you like me without you. But the yes. fact that you have such great work regarding mental health and faith uh, just makes you even higher up that ranking. So uh, I'm a big fan of what you're doing um, and, and just your graciousness and humbleness and um, 
and absolute care and concern for this sort of um, work is, is just so wonderful. So I, I, I think you're really great. And uh, thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. Yeah, thank you so much, Mason. This was great. And uh, yeah, I'm, I, I was expecting more hard hitting me without you questions. So you know, <laughs> we'll have to do it again sometime. That'll be, that'll be the post interview. <laughs> awesome. Sounds good. If you would like to connect with both David and Tigerwine and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.